Former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figluzzi. Join me on a journey deep inside the world's premier law enforcement agency to decode the mysteries and challenges of today's FBI. The threats facing America are as real as the men and women who battle to protect us. In this first of a kind podcast, we sit down with active duty FBI personnel who reveal their mission, their cases, and their lives. Let's go inside the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. He had taken a photo of this nine-year-old girl, and his hand was in the photo. From fingerprints to facial recognition to iris scans. Part of our next generation identification system. We're on camera in many places throughout our daily lives. We have face recognition capability. This is faster, cleaner, easier than fingerprints. No two irises have ever been found to be the same. How fast can the FBI match a fingerprint? Eight minutes and 39 seconds. Our guest for this episode is Joe Sensabaugh, Assistant Section Chief for Biometric Services in the FBI's Criminal Justice Information Services Division. From fingerprints to facial recognition to iris scans, biometrics play an increasing role in solving crimes. And all that data has to be collected, stored, and matched somewhere by someone. That's where our guest comes in. And if you've ever wondered if your fingerprints might be on file at the FBI, this episode is for you. Joe, welcome. Oh, thank you very much for having me here today. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Joe. And I and uh, boy, technical advances have come so far in terms of helping us identify people and solve crimes that I think we're going to have an interesting conversation. Tell us about uh, your journey into the FBI, how it happened, where you've served in the Bureau, and then lead us into biometric services and the mission of your section. I'm from a little town in Ohio, Burgles, Ohio, a little small town outside of Steubenville. Been with the FBI for 37 years. I've served at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., at the Engineering Research Facility in Quantico, Virginia. And for the past 29 years, I've been at the Sieges facility here in Clarksburg, West Virginia. Married my high school sweetheart, and we'll celebrate our 39th anniversary this year. And I have two adult sons, Kyle and Tyler, who both work for the FBI. Oh, a little a, a bureau legacy is in the works there, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah it's a family business. Indeed, indeed. Well, and we, we, we always like to say that the, the bureau was one big family as well. Tell us about the mission of the biometric services uh, section. What what are the various units there look like? Well, we, we, uh, we provide uh, biometric and criminal history information services for 18,000 law enforcement agencies across the country. The biometrics here are comprised of, of course, our, our fingerprinting, and that's been around since 1924 when the identification division was established by Congress. Uh, and they were looking to have a national repository and clearinghouse for fingerprints. 
And the first repository uh, consisted of what was contained at that time in the National Bureau of Criminal Identification and the Leavenworth Penitentiary. And it totaled about 810,000 prints. Then in 1933, the FBI established the latent fingerprint section and the civil identification section because the amount of cards uh, and requests for processing was just growing so rapidly. In 1939, we reached 10 million fingerprints. And in 1946, we became the largest repository of fingerprint cards in the world at 100 million. Today, we have over 400 million sets of fingerprints, and it represents about 138 million unique individuals. Some of the other areas, um, we have a latent investigative service. Uh, we have a, an unsolved latent file. This is part of our next generation identification system. And we have approximately 980,000 unsolved latent prints in that repository at any given time. Uh, the way that works is a fingerprint would come in, a 10-print card, and it would search against the holdings, and then it would search against the unsolved latent file. And if you hit on a record in there, a print there, it would send a message back to the agency that had placed that in there. In 2013, we, we brought online as a national service the palm print system. We had had palms around the country, uh, full, full sets. Uh, these called the major case prints. They were all uh, just card and ink, and we were able to bring them into a digitized national system in 2013. And we have probably about 46 million sets of palms right now in our repository, and those represent about 21 million individuals. Uh, we have a face recognition uh, capability. Uh, there is the FBI's interstate photo system, and that's a repository of all the photos. And you think mugshots when you think of this. And agencies around the country have the opportunity to send a probe photo in and then receive candidate lists back. And then they, with trained examiners, would make a determination if this was a likely candidate. And if so, that would generate an investigative lead. The FBI, uh, our division also uh, services the FBI uh, with that function where agents will submit cards to us or, or photos to us, and we will then search them against uh, the IPS and, and other holdings we, we, we have available to us. And then we will return a likely candidate if we have a, a, what we believe is a match by a trained biometric examiner out in the field. And then the, the other biometric we have is in 2020, we brought in a national iris service. We had had a pilot for some time, uh, but now we have a, a capability and we're starting to grow that repository and be able to work with different agencies to, to bring that technology online. Well, you, you seem to have just covered uh, virtually the entire spectrum of, uh, of biometrics. We, we're not going to get deep into DNA on this episode because that's it's um, that's it's somewhere else. Is that correct? Correct. That that is with the laboratory division uh, of the FBI down in Quantico. Uh, that's outside of here. However, the the CODIS, the the database that that houses the repository of DNAs, uh, that actually physically sits here on our campus. Got it. So so here's a here's a question that I think is on many people's minds. 
How do we know if our fingerprints are on file at the FBI? Where do you get all these prints from? Is it military service, employment services? Um, what's, what are the odds that the average American has, has their prints on file? Uh, well, I don't know if, if, if I would know the odds, but certainly if you are in a position of trust, working with any type of a vulnerable population, your prints have probably come through here for a, a background check of some sort. If you were in the military, for instance, or federal employment, your, your card was maintained here. One of the capabilities that, that NGI brought us was a, a service that's, that's called Ratback. And what Ratback does is it allows for someone in a position of trust, say a, a school teacher, and if their state participates in, in Ratback, when they get cleared, when they get their background check done, that print uh, normally would come through and then it would process and then the answer would go back and the print would not have been maintained. Now, after NGI, that print can be maintained here and then it is on file and is part of the holdings and then every subsequent arrest that comes in would hit against that and send a notification out to uh, to those agencies that this person that is in one of those positions had an encounter with law enforcement. And that acronym for our listeners, NGI, is Next Generation Identification? Yes, sir. Yes. Got it. Got it. Do we all have unique prints? Is that is that really true? And and if so, what, what about twins? What about identical twins? Yeah, it's funny you should mention that we actually study uh, identical twins, but and the answer is yes, they are all unique. Everybody's fingerprint is unique. Uh, they're actually developed in the womb differently, uh, even with, with twins. And so they are unique as they, they come out. Even if there are similarities, they are unique. Uh, we actually have a, a team that goes to Twinsburg, Ohio. They have an, an annual twins uh, gathering every year. And we've been going there for a number of years and taking photos, fingerprints. Now we're capturing irises and same thing with irises. No two irises have ever been found to be the same. So even with identical twins, their irises, their fingerprints might be similar, but but still different. Yes, still distinguishable. Very interesting. Uh, I've been to I've been to Twinsburg, Ohio, when I served as uh, as head of the FBI in uh, in Northern Ohio, and I'm familiar with the twins gathering. Uh, it makes the news every single year. Yeah. Miss it. People wave phones as much as they wave flags while storming the U.S. Capitol building on Wednesday. But for this kind of protest or riot or whatever you want to call it, you may want to use facial recognition. Pictures and videos hit social media. The question is, how can they authenticate that? The FBI and D.C. Capitol Police are using any and all images from Wednesday to find criminals. They're using face recognition technology and asking the public for help. Okay. How fast can the FBI match a fingerprint to a known uh, or existing print uh, in your database? Let's say the police have somebody in custody. The person's refusing to give up their identity. They fingerprint them. How quickly can you get a response to that police department? Well, right now, our average for a criminal submission is eight minutes and 39 seconds. We track that very, very closely. And the most recent statistics I just received was it's eight minutes and 39 seconds. Now, what makes that amazing is 
before the first generation of this technology, the um, IAFIS came online back in 1999, that took 20 to 30 days. So you would take the print, mail that into the FBI headquarters. They would process that when they got to it. Everything was manual. And by the time you got your response back, it was uh, about a month had passed. And they, I, I was given um, some data years ago that the year before the, uh, the first automation system uh, began, they estimate that approximately 20,000 individuals across the United States were released from custody waiting on a response from the FBI as to whether this person was wanted or not. They had an active want or a warrant and they had to let them go because they didn't get their response in time. Now we do about 200,000 or so a day and the criminal submission will turn around in, in about eight minutes or so. And a civil submission will return in less than an hour and a half, a minute, an hour and 19 minutes. And am I correct in saying that there are uh, police departments that are capable of taking prints from a patrol vehicle? Are there units out there in the field um, to do this? Well, there, there's a, a rapid ID system, and this is a handheld device, and it's typically a two-finger device. So if I approach a vehicle on the roadside, I've pulled somebody over, especially if I have any suspicion uh, in approaching the vehicle, I can have them put their two prints on it and it will do a quick check of, of a subset of our system. So it's going to be a sexual offender file, uh, once in warrants and a known and suspected terrorist. And that will return to them right then on the roadside that, uh, yes, this person is wanted or or a uh, notice, notice suspected terrorists. Got it. Yep. Huge, huge advance. Uh, certainly in the in the time that I've i sp- throughout the time I've spent in law enforcement, I I came into the bureau. We were doing the old fashioned fingerprint cards and ink uh, ink and cards. Um, you do you service the world, so to speak? Do do international uh, police departments and and law enforcement agencies interact with you in any way? Yeah, we, we have certainly the FBI is around the world with our legal attaches, but we also interact with our federal partners who may be overseas, say the DOD. And there are certain agreements we have with different foreign countries, Interpol, and there's some, some limited exchanges with, with those countries. We, you talked about kind of where where we've come in the in terms of facial recognition and iris scans. Let's let's dive deeper into facial recognition, how it's used, how you preserve privacy rights. Um, there's a lot of valid concern out there amongst the public um, that many of whom feel perhaps validly so that we're on camera, so to speak, in many places throughout our daily lives. How does facial recognition work? When do you utilize it? How do you preserve uh, privacy? Well, and, and, and that's, that's a significant concern of ours. Uh, one of the pillars in the FBI is privacy and civil liberties. And, and there are a lot of things we hear in the media. Uh, some of them are, are not quite correct. Uh, but, yeah, there's some, some very stringent controls that we take in the FBI here uh, in, in dealing with facial recognition. 
first and foremost, the FBI will only run a facial recognition search that is tied to an active criminal investigation. And somebody can't just send a photo in here. Uh, there has to be an active investigation open. Uh, and as you know, as a former agent, um, there are certain rules and requirements that a, every agent has to follow to open that case. So there are a lot of controls in place just inherently with that. We do not use facial recognition to identify individuals exercising their rights under the Fourth and First Amendments. Uh, so protesters in there, I know we, we've heard, oh, they, they may be scanning uh, legitimate protests and taking actions against those. That is not something that, that is permissible. Uh, we do no real-time facial recognition searches, meaning we don't have cameras feeding live captures of protests or other events into our facial recognition system. All law enforcement users of the CGIS facial recognition services, that IPS I mentioned, they must agree to very stringent policies, training, et cetera, before ever gaining access to the service. And the results of an FBI facial recognition search are strictly to be considered investigative leads only. No arrests are to be made solely on the basis of a facial recognition search, and the investigator has to produce other evidence leading to a, an arrest. So you don't just get a, a photo returned and say that's it. You can kind of think of this as the old, um, back in the day, it was a mugshot book. And if somebody was assaulted or robbed, and they saw the person, you could put them in front of that, and they could go through there and say, this looks like the, the person who assaulted me. You would take that then, and you wouldn't necessarily first go out and arrest somebody. You would then turn that to an investigator. They would track that down. They would look into it. Was the person even around for that? Were there other clues that would lead us to believe, yes, this could be the person before we ever knock on a door? Same kind of controls here. This is an investigative lead, and, and this is an automated way to kind of go through that mugshot book and pick out the ones. And then on top of that, and this is in, quarter, in accordance with the NIST standards, is it cannot be the system-generated response only. It has to be followed up with a human comparison uh, by a trained individual to put eyes on that and say, yes, this is the likely match with the probe photo. Yeah, sounds like sounds like a number of uh, parameters and guardrails have been put up to to help preserve privacy and to help mitigate against abuses, overreach, uh, excessive uh, exploitation, and that's a that's a good thing. Can you can you walk us through kind of getting in the weeds more from a practical standpoint? How a police department in the area of facial recognition, how a police department would go about interacting with your folks on, on facial recognition, get, get us into how a detective on the ground would make use of the system and how it might actually end up solving his crime. So, so probably a typical scenario would be, well, with all the other biometrics and, and criminal history record searches that are, that are available to law enforcement, uh, as you can imagine, if if I am down to, I haven't been able to find them through those all, all those go-to moves, uh, but I have been able to generate a photo on this individual, or perhaps it's a bank robbery, and we've all seen those on TV, the bank robbery photo. Most states, it could be through a, a crime lab, it could be through uh, their, their state police, 
where they have those trained examiners, that would typically be submitted to them. They would then launch that search against our IPS. And this is, they've already uh, met all the requirements and, and that agency is, is permitted, that grouping, and they have trained uh, examiners there to analyze the results. They would then launch that into us. They would get a gallery back. And in that gallery, they can choose how many they want. They will never get one because one implies an identification, and that's not what this is. They would get a gallery from two to 50, and they get to pick how the, the number they want. They then would go through that gallery and make their determination. What they receive with the, with the photo is also um, the universal criminal number, the UCN, the individual number for each fingerprint or face, and every face, every mugshot is tied to a fingerprint in our system. They would get that information. So if they said, yes, we believe this is the person we're looking for, or at least it, it, it's somebody we want to delve further into, they would then query the information utilizing that UCN, that unique identification number. Got it. Yeah, the bank robbery uh, example, I think, resonates with with all of us. As you said, we've all seen the pleas for help in a, a bank robber uh, staring at a teller and not not realizing that he's he or she's on camera. Iris scans, you've got my attention on that one. Is this where we're, where we're headed into the future of biometrics? And, and how many Iris scans do you have on file and, and how do you use them? For Iris uh, right now, it's just in its infancy and we probably have a million or so Iris photos. The law enforcement use, say, say you, we use the, the, uh, the bank robber example. Uh, the technology is a while from being able to capture irises in that scenario, for instance. So when I talk about an investigative use, I'm, I'm thinking of those sorts of things. However, today it is a positive ID. Uh, unlike photos, it is a positive ID like fingerprints. Uh, they are unique. Uh, the technology is phenomenal. It's over 99% accurate. With just a single eye, and we we have them use both eyes. So one of the early adopters for this has been prisons, uh, state prisons, federal government, to where before a person is released from from incarceration, they are running. They have locked down their uh, their irises. They took an iris scan while they were incarcerated, locked that down with, with uh, a fingerprint. Then when they go to leave for whatever reason, released, paroled, they will then run an iris check against our database and confirm that that is the person. Where, where we see this, the, the next level of really a, a adoption for this, if you think of sheriff's offices, the United States Marshals, people that ingest, that they, they arrest people and they, they take the biometrics and then they transport them through the system, through the process. So imagine, let's use the, the uh, U.S. Marshals. So I arrest somebody and I capture the entire gallery of, of biometrics. I'm getting a mugshot. I'm getting palms. I'm getting 10 prints. I'm taking irises. I'm getting a DNA swap. And I've locked those all down to that fingerprint. I've married them together. Then every time this person processes through the system, today, to ensure that I've handed him off from here to there. When I take him from a county lockup up to a different holding facility, you verify that through fingerprints. 
once you've locked those biometrics down, the ease of use to be able to simply do that through an iris that can go through the entire judicial process, through the prison system upon release, and even in post-release, in supervised release, parole, as those people have to check in, those, that can still be done through that positive ID of an iris. And, you know, through the pandemic we just came through, not having to touch or be touched uh, is a nice selling point to that as well. But the ease of use to be able to transport prison prisoners, move them around, verify identity, we think that's where uh, we're really going to get the early adoption. That will build the database. And then as the technology evolves into a more of an investigative law enforcement use, hopefully we will have the database there then that that, that will be able to get a bang for your buck for searching against an unknown gallery. Yeah, I definitely can see how this, this is faster, cleaner, easier than fingerprinting uh, someone without a doubt. Do you, do you think on the horizon, Joe, we're going we're gonna to see the day in our lifetime where iris scans as part of a booking or further identification process, even a, applying for a position of trust for employment, it becomes the uh, as common as a fingerprint? I don't know because, um, so if you look at our holdings, as I mentioned, we have 400 million sets of fingerprints and we have 1 million sets of iris. So if, I, if you were applying for the job and I was running you against to see if you had a criminal history, you're most likely going to be there in the fingerprint database and not in the 1 million iris database. To the point where it would grow to be comparable so that those generations and beyond would be locked down to that iris. A day will come when that is, is, is the case. How long that will take, I think will depend a lot on these, on this early adoption and, and how widespread it is. If, if it grows beyond just the prisoner verification, if it grows on to really be a, a great form for uh, transporting, for moving, for validating when I'm releasing someone, those things will just naturally grow and grow and grow. So uh, there could be a day when that is that is the case, but in the near future, uh, it's dwarfed. It sounds like it's going to happen someday, but maybe you and I won't be around to discuss it is what. Right. I got you. Um, hey, tell us about the the people of your section. By that, I mean we, we may have young people listening to us and they're interested in, in what we're talking about. They, they have some, there's appeal to them, the whole biometric topic. What, what are the academic backgrounds? What are the professional backgrounds? Um, what are the skill sets and characteristics of um, the most successful people uh, you see do this kind of work? It's the, the, the absolute gamut from high school graduates, uh, the, the fingerprint community, uh, a lot of people came right out of high school into here back in the day, and it is not uncommon to have someone with 20, 30, even 40 years in just the identification field, the fingerprinting field. Um, we have certainly a lot of college graduates, people with advanced degrees, uh, depending on what track you really want to get into. As you know, with an agent, it has to be a bachelor's degree and usually bachelor's and beyond in, in today's com- competition. But a lot of it is tied to the, the the career choice you pick once you're in the Bureau. 
If I'm going for a technical field, that would require a certain type of, of training and education. And again, uh, down to uh, some of these are just skills that we are going to train you. So we're looking for the right type of person, not necessarily a, a degree that you show up at the door with. Yeah, that's a, that, it's great to make the point that uh, so many uh, folks in the public just think of the FBI as the gun and badge special agent position, but there are so many more professional specialist positions throughout the Bureau that, uh, that offers a very rewarding career. Speaking of rewarding, let's talk about some success stories. What can you tell us um, that's worked, worked out really well and, um, and maybe, maybe involves some of the more advanced uh, techniques like facial recognition? Yeah, I actually um, was able to pull together a few of them here in some of the different categories. If you remember, I said in 2013, we, we came up with the national, uh, we launched the national palm print system. So in 2016 in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, there was an elderly female. Uh, she lived alone and she was asleep in her apartment and is a ground floor. And a guy got in through an open bathroom window, climbed in, attempted to sexually assault her. Uh, she fought him off. So he stopped the assault, demanded money, and she had like $26 within reach. She gave him the money and he left. Um, she had some injuries, but for the most part, she was okay. Called the police. Uh, they were able to lift a palm print off of the windowsill from, from the bathroom. And as one of the early ones to be able to tie in with the, the, that system and um, that new system and be able to do a hit. Because if you remember when we started that in 2013, we were on a dead sprint to try to grow that database to the point where we had enough in there, just kind of like we talked about with Iris. So you had enough palms. So when you do have this kind of occurrence and you do a search, it's in there. there there's one in there and this one was. And so this was, uh, this was a success for that new technology. Person ended up with uh, eight to 20 years of incarceration and a lifetime supervision as a sexual offender. Had one pretty unique in that Back in 2015, the Texas Attorney General's Child Exploitation Unit received a cyber tip line report from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, that's NCBEC, regarding a female child being sexually assaulted. And based on the investigative lead, they located several images of the victim, and they were able to turn that over to the Texas Department of Public Safety. And the, they, in looking at the photos, they saw one of the photos was of the guy. He had taken a photo of this nine-year-old girl, and she was asleep on a couch. And he had lifted her uh, blanket out of the way and took a photo of her, and his hand was in the photo. And it was of such a close-up and, and good quality that they could actually see the, the friction ridge, the detail in the photo of the fingerprint. So what this um, inventive examiner did was she did some research and found out that, you know, if, if I, if you, a typical hand say is going to be, let's say it's seven inches and then halfway through is going to be the bottom parts, your palm, the upper half is your distals, your fingers. If I break that into thirds, that upper part, 
I'm going to get about the right measurement, the right size to be able to make this, to be able to do a corresponding launch into the system. So she pulled this out and, you know, we've all seen on TV where a typical uh, a latent print is lifted. They go in and there was a, a print on a table or a wall and they dust it with uh, some dark dust. Then they put a piece of tape on it and they pull that up. And then that becomes your latent print. Well, in this case, it was a photo of that, of that uh, friction ridge detail. And so she was able to launch that into NGI. And in about eight hours, she got a, a response back. And it hit to an individual, and that person appeared to be in uh, Georgia. So they got on the phone to Georgia law enforcement, and in three hours, they were able to arrest the individual. And, you know, with with the evidence they had, um, he admitted to it, and he consented to use, allow them, the, the, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, to use his online identity that was that he was using to exchange these photos, and he had in his possession on his phone something like nine hundred seven hundred ninety images and a hundred videos of child pornography, and they were able to then interact with a bunch of other people trying to trade pornograph child pornography, and and just open countless investigations across the country into these individuals. That well, was a, a huge success, but it was it was a, a somebody showing a little innovation and and being able to use the system in a way that it really hadn't been used before. Wow, you talk about rewarding and and a success story. That you know the fact uh, this would have been a phenomenal story just if it meant uh, that you were able to get a print off of a photo image of a hand, but the fact that it actually helped capture someone who was victimizing children just adds to the to the incredible success story uh that i i I loved that one joe do we have anything in the area of facial recognition yet that we can talk about in terms of success yeah i do so also in 2015 uh, out of our pittsburgh field office which is just up the road from us uh an agent was working on uh looking through cold cases and he had um, came across somebody, and the investigation was a violent criminal threat dealing with unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. So uh, what this was, it was a guy who had sexually molested his three children for 10 years in a Pennsylvania court found him guilty of, of those crimes. But in April 96, when he was to be sentenced, he failed to appear for sentencing and could not be located. So the guy took off in 1996. So this is 2015. And he, he had a photo of the, the, the individual. And he sent that down to us. And in addition to our, our, uh, the interstate photo system of mugshots, we also have agreements in place with various departments of motor vehicle who are permitted by law and agree to launch searches for us on criminal investigation uh, cases. So we, we sent some of those out and we got a hit back in Arkansas. Uh, they ran through their photos through their DMV and, and they found the face, found the guy, but with a different name, different social security number. Uh, they were from a stolen identity of somebody in, in Virginia. 
One thing, though, that when he re- he was no longer in, in Arkansas, but when he relocated, he did a transfer of his license to the new state, which was Oklahoma. <laughs> so the, uh, the agent from Pittsburgh got a hold of the Muskogee Resident Agency, uh, the FBI out in, in Oklahoma, and confirmed that the subject was actually living there. And they surveilled him and they arrested him at his place of employment. And he had been living under that assumed name since 97, about a year after he took off. So he had been a fugitive for about 19 years. And through facial recognition, we were able to track him down. 19 years later and technology has caught up with him. That, that's a great success story. Joe, I'm, I'm loving these success stories. Do you have uh, one more you can share with us? Uh, yeah, I have one here that it, it kind of ties uh, latents and DNA together in a unique way. So in is in North, Norfolk, Virginia, in 2008, a man broke into a lady's apartment and he raped her. Now, they, um, he was able to escape. He had tied her up. She was able to free herself, called the police. Uh, they were able to get latents from, from the occurrence and they were able to get DNA. Uh, they ran the latents through the system, and there was no match to them. The person had never been arrested. About a month later, the same lady and her teenage daughter were returning home, and when they walked in the door to the apartment, a man was there waiting on them, tied them both up, this time raped the teenage daughter, stole a few items, and again, we got latent prints, uh, they got DNA, but the latent print just matched to the same guy. So they did know it was the same guy, but they had no idea who it was. Ran the DNA. Again, the DNAs both matched, but we had no idea in CODIS who the individual was. Two years later in Kuwait, now, and, and I should mention that the lady was a, a member of the Navy. And in 2010 in Kuwait, there was an attempted rape of, of a woman and... Again, they were able to get uh, DNA, no latents. And when they ran that DNA back, they found that it actually hit against the two they already had. So they knew it was tied to the case back in Norfolk, but they had no ID, no identification of, of who that was. Now, with the NGI upgrade with the latent service, one of the capabilities that came along in 2013 was ability for it to cascade against the civil prints. So you mentioned earlier about, say, military prints, you would have them on file. Well, up until 2013, there wasn't an automated search of that with a latent search. So we reached out to Norfolk, and we launched the search of those latents against our civil holdings, and it got a hit. And it hit against a uh, the military prints of a naval reservist, and it turns out his duty stations uh, were in Norfolk and Kuwait, and they coincided with all three of those attacks. So then they were able to get a, a swab from him and a print and lock him down that, yes, this was the individual uh, for all three of those attacks. Wow. Another success story that spanned uh, halfway around the globe. Uh, we could probably fill uh, another hour with uh, with the success stories of biometrics. and. And I can only in, envision and imagine where this is headed someday for next generations in crime solving. You, Joe, have served the FBI for how many years? 37. 
37 years of service uh, helping to keep us safe. I thank you for your service and, and please go back and thank everyone in your section on behalf of all our listeners for what they do to keep America safe. Join us next week on the Bureau when the head of the famed FBI Academy walks us through a week in the life of new agent trainees and intelligence analyst candidates in an episode called Conquering Quantico. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey. The show is engineered by Matt Brousseau with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.